there's a podcast I think our listeners would want to know about. It's called Seen on Radio. And the show has received much acclaim for its deep and engaging dives into the history and the very structure of American society. How can we see society more clearly so we can be more effective in changing it? Seen on radio's two recent documentary series, Seeing White and Men, have explored racism and sexism in eye-opening ways. Check out Seen on Radio. That's S-C-E-N-E on radio from the Center for Documentary Studies and PRX. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. How can we make sense of our currently chaotic healthcare system? That's the main question for our guest on Future Hindsight today, Dan Weissman. He's a veteran radio reporter who hosts a podcast about the cost of healthcare for everyday Americans which is very aptly called an arm and a leg. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So like many people who are civically engaged, you created something new, this podcast, out of a personal experience. What happened that led you to create the show? I left a job and I'm in a field, journalism, where you're not sure where next job's going to go. And going out on my own was like, well, that's crazy because where's the health insurance supposed to come from? I'm not the only person living with this story. I didn't see anybody else doing exactly this, which is just the everyday conversation about this is expensive in a way that actually runs our lives, guides our career choices, and and lots else. We get a lot of partisan or policy stories, but this ongoing story of how are we all supposed to live through this, that I didn't hear happening. And I was like, I have a feeling this could reach some people. And it was definitely the story that I was most interested in exploring. So with a lot of support from my family and some from friends, we we went for it. Yeah, it's a really great show. What I like best is exactly your focus on the personal stories of how people are actually dealing with it day to day and how difficult it is to navigate figuring out your healthcare choices. You have three really insightful episodes in the last season that I think can at least uncover some of the complexities in figuring out a good way for us to pick the right health insurance for ourselves. So the first episode that I thought was really on point here was the one where you speak to a Carnegie Mellon behavioral economist, George Lowenstein, and he did some research on how we can make sound decisions about healthcare. What did he discover about picking a good health plan? What he found is it's almost impossible or beyond most of our reach to to pick the best one, which isn't to say it's like impossible to pick an okay one, although it depends on what you're offered. It was so hard that he himself was about to have this choice. Uh, His son was kind of aging out of eligibility to be on the family health plan, and he knew that his son was going to be a little less savvy about it than he himself would be. He's like, so it's going to be my job. And he was like, I am dreading doing this. I I don't have confidence that I'm going to make the best choice here. Yeah, and he then tested in a real study on how people make choices. And it turns out that really the best way for people to make choices is for somebody else to offer the answers as opposed to each of us individually trying to figure out, well, what is the deductible that I want to pay? What is the copay that I'm willing to pay? And what are the things that I need in my healthcare plan? Because when we do that ourselves, 61% of us 
will not pick a plan that is good. But once somebody else does all the math and all the planning and the rules and regulations, then 80% of us can make a sound decision. That's totally insane. How can we, (laughs) I mean, how can we be expected (laughs) to be able to do this? It's too hard for most of us. What he found was, it was very interesting. He started with a great big data set that he got from a corporation of how people actually chose their healthcare. And he and a colleague looked at it and determined most of the choices that people were offered. And in this case, it was kind of like they were given a menu so they could almost build their own plan in a way. And But that most of the things they could choose would be bad, would just not be optimal. And 61% of people chose plans that were not a good deal for them. And so they they dug in, they did surveys, they did experiments where they had people make choices. And what they found were basically two things. And one is that most of us don't really even understand the vocabulary well enough to make sound choices, which is to say, like, what's a deductible? What's a copay? What's coinsurance? How do those things interact? And that, But then the other thing he found was it's not just regular people. He gives talks to economists about this. And he shows them a scenario where it's fairly simple and you should be able to do the math in your head. And most of the economists in the room will raise their hand for choices that just don't make any sense. I thought, but I understand the terms. I, I can make a spreadsheet. And I talked to an expert, a woman named Lynn Quincy. She runs a group called the Healthcare Value Hub. And I was like, right, I can do that. And she was like, no. I mean, maybe if if the plan is simple, but a lot of them are much more complicated where it's like, how about a deductible just for pharma? How about a separate copay for this and a different coinsurance for that? How's your spreadsheet looking now? And I was like, my spreadsheet is looking crazy. I, don't, <laughs> I, can't, I can't do that. George and his colleagues built a scenario where basically you'd plugged in what your real situation is and it ran the numbers for you. And it told you the answers in terms of this is like what you could expect to pay in total. This is what you could expect to pay if you basically never went to the doctor. So you're just paying premiums. And this is what you could expect to pay if you like, God forbid, got hit by a bus. So you can see the range of like what your risk is and what you're actually guaranteed to put out. And when you get those numbers in front of you, people make choices that make sense for them. And there are people who have made third party tools that actually do this, but not all of us have access to them. There are states that contract with firms that make these kind of tools for their Obamacare exchanges. And there are firms that do this for employers, I've since learned. Some people have access to this information, but the rest of us are just like, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Yes, it's totally overwhelming and totally unfair. So in general, what have you found? What is the cost that is maybe an optimal cost for insurance? Oh, man. I have no idea. That's such a huge question. There's two big things that it depends on. And one is it depends on you. Like, what do you know you're going to be on the hook for next year? I got a hip that needs replacing, or I'm going to have a kid next year, or I've got a chronic health condition. Some people know, like, I'm going to put some miles on health insurance next year. So that's one. And the other is, well, what's available to you? A lot of us work for somebody else, and that somebody else has made some decisions about what health plans you got access to. Or if you're on the Obamacare exchange, you know, insurance companies have decided what they're going to offer on those exchanges. Those, in terms of dollar amount, I mean, my impression is that just varies like crazy from like what's offered may, the, the premiums and everything else may be just very different 
on an Obamacare exchange, for instance, from one state to another. And then there's all the other spreadsheets about like, well, you could qualify for a subsidy from the government for your Obamacare. The thing you're solving for is what's the total that I'm going to pay just out of my pocket in a year where I'm basically healthy? And then what is this plan going to do for me if I get hit by a bus or like when I have that baby? You know, and and for there, you're looking partly at what are your co-pays and co-insurance. You're also then looking at like, well, what's the network of providers that this plan gives me access to? It's one set of costs if I see Dr. X and Dr. X is covered by that network. But then if Dr. X isn't part of the network, isn't covered by this plan, I got a whole other set of costs. So... I just got kind of tired. That's a lot. (laughs) That's very, very complex. One of the things that you do with your show is you have people call in and leave messages with their stories. Mm -hmm. There's one woman who left a message about how you should uh, spend all of your deductible expenses at the beginning of your cycle so you don't get hit by that twice in a row. (laughs) That was really good advice. From all the messages that you have fielded and everything that you have learned in the last season, what would you say is the deepest worry about the cost of health insurance to everyday people? You you have to watch your back so carefully. Do the best math you can to to figure out, you know, what you're on the hook for with whatever insurance you happen to have. How do you avoid getting hit by a bus or any other terrible thing that could happen to you getting turned into bankruptcy? You got to be super vigilant about that. And then the the other thing is you got to expect that if it's anything serious, where there's multiple bills, you got to kind of expect somebody on the other side of that could easily be making a mistake. And you got to be on the lookout for that. And even before you go in, if you have any choice at all, which often we don't, because maybe you got to go to the emergency room, or you don't have a lot of choice, or there's not a lot of providers in your area, you want to ask as much as you can up front about like, what's this going to cost me? Are you on my insurance? What does that mean? It seems like it's almost routine that there's going to be a mistake on there and it's not going to be in your favor. And then you got to expect that it could be no small chunk of work to clear it up. And what I'm finding in the people that I'm hearing from, your best case scenario is you put a lot of effort in on the front end, shopping around, and or on the back end, being diligent, and you don't end up needlessly paying tons of money that you that you didn't actually have to pay. And on the worse end. Someone could make a mistake that could cost you a ton of money. And then with all of your diligence and all of this labor, limit the bleeding. We're walking through a battlefield. Anything could be like coming for you. We got to learn this battlefield. And that's what the show is about, is like all of us together figuring out what we are up against and what we got to do to survive it. It's actually a perversion of the system when you think about it, that here we have an industry that is meant to give us a sense of peace. We're buying insurance in the worst case scenario that we are sick for whatever reason. And yet it is actually a setup where we are at war, as you say. We're at battle with our insurance company and potentially also with our healthcare providers, the doctors and the nurses, because we may or may not be 
in network and we have an emergency and we don't really have a choice. This is like we need the care right now and this is not the time to be shopping for better care. But you did an mm. episode mm-hmm. about how these companies are actually exacerbating the problem of high medical care costs. Tell us how insurance companies are keeping prices high and opaque. Yeah. Oh, man, this was such an eye opener. I kind of figured it out with the help of a reporter from a group called Kaiser Health News. And and she basically was looking at it from the other side of like doctors and what they get paid by insurance. And this independent doctor was like, man, I haven't gotten a raise in 10, you know, in eight years and it's kind of killing me. But I go to the insurance companies. They're like, whatever. You don't have any market share. We don't have to deal with you. If you don't want to take our insurance, don't take it. And but then. Another doctor across the street had been in the exact same position until a couple of years ago when he sold to a great big hospital. And suddenly that hospital is collecting more than twice as much every time he delivers a baby, even though it's still him doing exactly the same thing in exactly the same place. And he is not getting paid anymore. That difference is going to the bigger medical group. And there are other medical groups that charge even more for the same thing. And in this case, the bigger groups was like Stanford Medicine or the University of California hospital system. And, you know, thinking it through, it's like, oh, right. Because if I'm the insurance company and Stanford says to me, this is what it costs to deliver a baby here. uh, And I'm like, that's too much. And I'm Stanford. I'm like, well, great. Tell that to all the people you insure who want to have their babies at Stanford, who have doctors here. They don't have the leverage. But then they don't have themselves a huge incentive to push harder because ultimately it's not their money. And they turn around to whoever they're selling insurance to and they're like, your premium's going up. Uh, If it's like an employer group buying or whoever, they're like, that premium's a lot – and the insurance company is like, well, you can, you know, you can have a lower premium, I guess, but then you got to have a higher deductible or a higher copay, which is how much you pay when you go to the doctor. That's a bigger and bigger problem because those prices go up, and now we, a lot of us have plans with a high deductible, six thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, before insurance pays anything. So that that episode opened with a guy who like needed a leg brace, and the the doctor was like, "Go downstairs, they'll give you one." He hobbled away with it and and looked it up. And, you know, he could have ordered it for 150 bucks from Amazon. But the doctor's office was like, yeah, that's a $1,400 leg brace. And Blue Cross had been like, no, that's too much. No, no, make it a $600 leg brace. And he hadn't paid his deductible. So he was paying 600 bucks for something he could have got for 150 bucks. Yeah, exactly. It's so confusing and just so crazy. You know, yeah. when you think about it, that yeah. essentially the insurance companies and maybe the big hospitals are sort of in it together to raise the prices on us. <laughs> and then we have no power to to do anything. And then the rhetoric is like, oh, no, you're the consumer. You need to go shopping for yeah, the most right. affordable doctor. Then you'll be a smart shopper. But we don't get yeah, we don't get to actually negotiate prices so much of the time. And no. not only that, we also need to find a good doctor. We need. The advice. It's not just about the money. So what is the larger cost of healthcare to our society, the way that it is structured here right now? I spend so much of my time looking at it because the cost of healthcare for me was like gonna potentially be my career. If I if going out on my own is the next step, I don't know where my health insurance is gonna come from. Then I guess I gotta go get some career where there is health insurance. That's a pretty big deal. And I'm not alone in that. Uh, I hear from people all the time who are like, I think about this every night. 
my financial life is precarious. Today I'm okay, but tomorrow, you know, next year my insurance plan could change and who knows what the hell will happen. My wife says that if you have the right kind of insurance, it's like living in Sweden. And that's all our goal is that in some in some country where there's like where this is all taken care of for you. And one category, maybe the biggest category of notes that I get are from people writing me from Sweden. And they're like, I am able to think about a lot of other things because I'm not worried about it. If I get sick, I go to the doctor, I get treated and I pay some nominal fee and like I'm done and I am spending my life thinking about other things, leading my own career. Like, this is a big constraint. It's a constraint that people, you know, plan a lot of things around. It's a constraint that, like, then can fall like a hammer on people. NPR works with Kaiser Health News to produce a series called Bill of the Month. Every single one of those stories is like a hair raiser. Woman gets bit by her cat, goes to the hospital, gets a rabies shot, and the hospital's like, well, we charge $40,000 for a rabies shot. I don't know about you. Yeah, and you don't have a choice because you just got bitten by a cat. At the beginning of the year, the feds required hospitals to post their quote-unquote list prices for things that they do online. But are you supposed to go to every hospital and look up that spreadsheet and try to find rabies shot on it, which probably isn't in plain English, and then figure out if that's actually the price that you would be supposed to pay? Because if you have insurance, your insurance has done some deal with that hospital. Like, who are you supposed to call? But when I call my insurance company, I expect to be on hold for a long time. Like that could be a week's project to figure out what the rabies shot costs where. One of your episodes actually addresses how to deal with this. And it's a great episode about the Renaissance Fair workers. Uh, they don't have health insurance and they don't have a lot of money. You mentioned in your podcast that their income is about $6,000 to $7,000 per year. Uh, one of the things that they did is they started a rescue foundation. Mm -hmm. And they also have hired somebody who can help them reduce the cost of the care that they needed to get. But why don't you tell us about that? Because that's a good story. Yeah, they're fantastic. They have a long tradition of helping each other out. And the rescue foundation is where 15 years ago they decided to get a little more organized about it, partly just to make sure that they were, you know, getting all the resources where it needed to go. So on the one side, Rescue Foundation runs basically fundraisers. And that money goes to people who are like, I can't pay for this, or my insurance leaves me this much short. And they have a whole little micro bureaucracy to kind of vet all of those requests and give out money where, they, where it's most needed. But then the Rescue Foundation itself also employs one person part-time to basically be like the counselor for all these people who like basically teaches them the ways to negotiate, which in in a lot of cases, because these are people without a lot of money, is basically just asking the hospital the, like the magic words, do you have a financial aid application? Do you have a charity care application? Because most hospitals do have a process for subsidizing care for people who don't have money. She also teaches them other ways to negotiate, to say like, well, this is what you're asking for. I just looked it up. This is what Medicare pays in your area. Could I pay you the Medicare price? Or variously like, okay, how much would you accept? And so she teaches them those skills and occasionally will like get on a call with them. Those efforts, they calculate, have saved more than $2 million worth of medical bills over the course of a few years, which is four or five times as much as they 
have raised through their fundraisers. That's very cool. And it sounds like yeah. you really need to be your own personal advocate. In fact, yeah. <laughs> this leads me to my next question. How can yeah. we, as Americans, advocate for a system that actually is paying the real cost because it sounds like all the costs are inflated, right? Something that actually is, you know, functional, but it's reasonably priced. Reasonably yeah, can, priced, can, exactly. Yeah, right. You know, it's the gazillion dollar question, right? In the US economy, it's the $3 trillion question. There's tons of people who are way ahead of me on that, who don't all agree with each other, even in good faith. I don't yet know enough to rigorously evaluate those positions. But I am coming to think, one person wrote me who was kind of an expert in, in helping people find the workarounds, help people get smart, negotiate well, and you know get a little less bruised. And one thing she said she learned from that was that ultimately it does lead to a political fight. You've got to kind of attack the regulatory structure and other kinds of things. So that's one. The other thing, though, is that Nobody involved in our current system, including patients, wants to lose anything that they have, which is totally understandable. And the big players, hospital systems, pharma companies, insurance companies, are prepared to kind of muscle their way into any political conversation. I think of my role like I'm not a guide. I don't have a map. I'm not an expert. I'm not a general and I have a battle plan. What I am is I'm a scout, right? <laughs> like I'm down here on the ground with all of us. I'm just looking around the next corner and reporting back about what I saw and noticing important things. That's what I can offer. We can't wait for the person with that battle plan and the backup army for us to come in and, and make it all happen. We have to live in this battle zone now and find our best way to keep living in it until we get something better. Until the solution comes, if it comes. What was maybe the most unexpected thing that you learned in the last season? I mean, everything's shocking. When the penny dropped, it's like, oh, insurance companies say they're lowering prices, but they're not. Like, what's been the nicest is what people have said, which is like, thank you for doing this. I enjoy it. This is fun for me. This is good company for me. I'm learning things from this. My head's exploding and I want to know more because I had no idea if that was going to happen. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful is what I'm hearing from folks who listen to the show because I'm getting a lot of good tips. That makes me hopeful that like there is the capacity for people to come together and get something better pass around our secrets and learn from each other one little battle at a time, and that knowing more is powerful. And I've met now people who have been out there doing it. There's, there's winnable battles. It's totally worth fighting. That's great. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun talking with you. Clearly, the solution is not with individuals trying to negotiate their individual bills every single time with their providers, whether it's a hospital or their doctor's office, or for us to be the responsible consumer to find the doctor with the best rates, but who also happens to be the best possible doctor for whatever situation you face, which is basically impossible if you have an emergency. What I have suspected all along is that insurance companies are making our healthcare system more costly, 
and more complicated. And at the same time, they are the people who are writing a lot of the healthcare policies. The solution is political. We have to get engaged as everyday citizens. We have to demand this from our legislators that we have a healthcare system that serves us. And when we get insurance, that it's something that we can rely on to help us as opposed to something we can rely on to fleece us. Why is the foundation of who we are as adult citizens laid in our childhood? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Gail Joseph. She's the founding executive director of Cultivate Learning at the University of Washington, as well as the Bezos Family Foundation Distinguished Professor in Early Learning. The quality of early care and education is going to be almost wholly dependent on the adult that is in that classroom with the young children. And yet we have an early learning workforce that makes wages that keep them in poverty. They have very limited access to their own quality professional development, let alone degrees. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.